Well, hello. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Diagnosing a Killer, The Mental Breakdown. The Mental Breaky. The one that was supposed to be posted <laughs> last week. Whoops. And now we're redoing it for you guys because we yeah. love you guys. Yeah. The software, if you didn't see the post, actually deleted the episode that we had pre-recorded, and there was literally no way, because I found out about eight hours before I left (laughs) for my out-of-town vacation, but we are back, and we are going to give you the content that you deserve, because we definitely weren't going to say, oh, screw it, we're not going to do that episode, because Koala already knows what it is. Yeah, I already know what it is, but it's going to be fun. We're going to redo it, and it's fine. It's fine. It's totally fine. I think it's interesting. It's a really good one. So before we get started, do you want to talk about our handles, if anyone's listening that's new? Yes, you can catch us at diagnosingakiller.com. There you will find links to research and merch and more. Check out our social media accounts at diagnosingakiller everywhere except for Twitter, which is at killerdiagnosis. You can email us at diagnosingakiller at gmail.com and buy your tickety tickets for the true crime paranormal podcast festival in austin <laughs> late august it'll be our two-year anniversary it will and we already ordered all the merch yes i'm very excited to see so, all of the little goodies so excited so excited what would be really cool is if any of you guys are planning on coming buy a shirt and then show up wearing it yeah i would love oh, to see that and we would so definitely cool. post that on our instagram too Heck yeah we definitely would if anybody shows up in our merch we are posting that on instagram i'm saying it now yes because i have control of the instagram <laughs> so you can't disagree <laughs> all right well definitely yeah check us out get those tickets this is a mere like two weeks away which is wild so wild you get an extra 15 percent off with the coupon code d-a-k-p-o-d perfect well we look forward to seeing you guys yeah okay shall we do it yes all right so for this mental breakdown we are going to be talking about the milgram experiment and I know that we, you and I had already <laughs> recorded this, so you know what it is. <laughs> However, However like, it's been a while. <laughs> Have you ever heard of this? Have you ever heard of this before? No? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I have amnesia. All right, so for the listeners. Stanley Milgram was born on August 15th, 1933, in the Bronx, New York City, to parents Adele and Samuel Milgram. His parents had immigrated to the U.S. from Romania and Hungary during World War II, where they would go on to have Stanley and his two siblings, Marjorie and Joel, and all three of the children were raised in the Jewish faith. Mm-hmm. Coming from Europe during World War II, Stanley's immediate and extended family were actually both affected by the Holocaust. Mm. After the war was over and Stanley was around 12, some relatives of his who had survived Nazi concentration camps and actually had tattoos from them as well had stayed with him and his family in New York. I can't even imagine that. That is like, it's incomprehensible. It really is. And to see the something like a tattoo and it know exactly why they have that tattoo of course it's not a choice they were branded it's exactly so sad and of course not to mention you know the physical toll like it was probably a really big shock to the kids i bet and so stanley was known as being super invested in the story of what jewish people had to go through during the holocaust and even used the impacts of world war ii on jewish people as a subject of his bar mitzvah speech yeah, that I, I do remember you saying that, and I, that really shook me. Yeah. He was noted as saying, upon becoming a man under Jewish law, quote, 
as I find happiness in joining the ranks of Israel. The knowledge of the tragic suffering of my fellow Jews makes this an occasion to reflect upon the heritage of my people, which now becomes mine. I shall try to understand my people and do my best to show the responsibilities which history has placed on all of us, end quote. What a young man, though, like, to use that platform to be able to to use it to bring awareness all over again to, yeah, absolutely. to the struggles of, of the Jewish people. I think that he also felt like he was born at the wrong time, and he almost felt a sense of, like, survivor's guilt mm-hmm. for having his relatives live with him and yeah. them having to have gone through that, and he hadn't. Yeah. He actually would later state to a friend that he had from childhood, quote, I should have been born into the German-speaking Jewish community of Prague at 1922 and died in a gas chamber some 20 years later. How I came to be born in the Bronx Hospital, I'll never quite understand. End quote. That's that, like, that's that type of overview effect type feel that I have, I am just this very small ant. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm almost insignificant, but if the fates had designed it so, I could have been in a very different place. That's exactly how I think about it. Like, I have that feeling sometimes, too. Like, how did we get so lucky to have been born in where we were born? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. But, you know, what had to have changed or what would have changed in order for us to be born, let's say, in Africa or in Australia, you know? Yeah. Just, it's just crazy how everything has to align perfectly. And I bet that he feels like, why did I, like, what's so special about me? That is now just, I have to use it. Yeah, that does make sense when he said, you know, there's survivor's guilt. I can see how he might feel that way. Yeah, exactly. So many people would go on to write about Stanley Milgram later in his life, one being Professor Thomas Blass. He referred to Stanley's interest in the Holocaust as his, quote, lifelong identification with the Jewish people, end quote. Author Kristen Fermiglitch would write that Stanley, as an adult, had, quote, a personal conflict as a Jewish man who perceived himself both as an outsider, a victim of the Nazi destruction, and as an insider, a scientist, end mm. quote. Which is like, again, like, he's using it. Yeah. You know, you use that pain and that guilt and whatever he's feeling, and he's gonna, he's like, I'm gonna fucking make a difference then, I'm or I'm gonna prove it. something. Yeah. So Stanley would be known to utilize these ideations about the Jewish culture and the Holocaust as a motive behind his research in the future as a scientist. By the time he was college age, Stanley's family had moved to Queens, and in 1954, Stanley would receive his bachelor's degree in political science from Queens College in New York. He would also study at Brooklyn College, where he received A-plus grades in psychology of personality and an eclectic approach to social, social psychology courses. He would then go on to apply to a PhD program at, in social psychology at Harvard, but would initially be rejected due to an insufficient background in psychology. Because mm. he only had those two courses. He didn't yeah. have like, a degree. <laughs> can't just pursue a PhD in anything. Well, you know, some people. Some people can. <laughs> you gotta he, forge, those, forge those certificates. <laughs> so the man persevered, and he would ultimately be accepted to Harvard after first enrolling as a student in the Office of Special Students at Harvard. Okay. In 1961, Stanley would receive his PhD in social psychology from Harvard and would then become assistant professor at Yale in the fall of 1960. I guess he didn't want to stay at Harvard to become a professor. (laughs) (laughs) Although he had been getting multiple different opportunities, Stanley was still often thinking about the horrific treatment of Jewish people during World War II. 
He just couldn't wrap his head around the fact that so many people were treating others so terribly, and they weren't going against the authority figures that were telling them to do so. Especially on a mass scale like that. Yes. Like, you would think there's got to be at least a handful of them that were like, this is wrong. This is wrong. And but we also, need to be able there was, to do something about it. But there were so many people at the same time, not to make an excuse, but there were so many people at the same time, I can't imagine the fear of, like, even if there's five of us that go against the 400... They're just going to kill us. Yeah. You know, it's, it's got to be a horrible be situation. be as traitors or whatever. Yeah. I mean, they're pieces of shit regardless. I'm and not trying to say they that. They clearly but. can see that people are, you know, that what they're willing to do to people in general. Yeah. So not in general, but specifically to the Jewish people. Well, yeah. yeah. Just because someone in authority is telling you to. Because, yeah. So if, you know, who knows what they'll do to me if I'm a traitor. Mm-hmm. Ugh. So also around the time that Stanley was working at Yale, Nazi war criminal by the name of Adolf Eichmann was getting ready to be tried. He had gotten arrested in the the prior years. Mm. So after the war, several survivors of the Holocaust had dedicated themselves to finding Eichmann and other Nazis that had escaped. Hell yeah. That were like in hiding. Yeah. It's like a inglorious bastards. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just super pussies. So Eichmann would ultimately be convicted on charges of war crimes, crimes against humanity, crimes against the Jewish people, and membership in a criminal organization. So that's what he was on trial for. How much did he get? Um, I actually don't know. Do you want to look it up? Yeah. I'm assuming he was sentenced to death because within a year of the trial, Eichmann was hanged on June, uh, June 1st, 1962. Dang. Yeah. So. Got off a little easy there, don't you think? It's <laughs> a life sentence for sure. God. Whew. So the trial started in 1961, like you just said, a year later. But three months after the trial had started, a public announcement was put on campus of Yale. Quote, We will pay you $4 for one hour of your time. Persons needed for a study of memory. We will pay 500 New Haven men to help us complete a scientific study of memory and learning. The study is being done at Yale University. Each person who participates will be paid $4 plus 50 cents car fare for approximately one hour's time. We need you for only one hour. There are no further obligations. You may choose the time you would like to come, evenings, weekdays, or weekends. All persons must be between the ages of 20 and 50. High school and college students cannot be used. If you meet these qualifications, fill out the coupon below and mail it now to Professor Stanley Milgram, Department of Psychology, Yale University, New Haven. You'll be notified later the specific time and place of the study. We reserve the right to decline any application. End quote. So I think that like four dollars sounds really lame, but the conversion is forty bucks. Oh geez. So yeah. for one for hour. One hour? Yeah. Hell yeah, I'd do I it. I would do it. <laughs> it's amazing. So the purpose of this experiment, according to Stanley, was to measure the willingness of participants to obey an authority figure who instructed them to perform acts conflicting with their personal conscience. The study included forty men in the age range from twenty to fifty, and would begin on August seventh, nineteen sixty one. Three individuals took part in each session of the experiment. The experimenter who was in charge of the session, the teacher, a volunteer for a single session who were led to believe that they are merely assisting, whereas they were actually the subjects, mm-hmm. and the learner or actor, which is a com- confederate of the experimenter who pretended to be a volunteer. Okay, so there's the volunteer, the teacher slash subject. Yes. But so, this is like the person in the middle. This was the confusing part the last time we recorded yeah. this, so I'll just explain for everyone because now I know. So the experimenter is the person, like, leading the experiment. The person that is the teacher and the person that is the learner are both coming in. One of them is posing as a volunteer, and one of them actually is a volunteer. Okay. 
what they would do is have the learner and the teacher pull a piece of paper, like a slip, and they would say, like, random choice, you're going to be either the teacher or the, the learner. But the actor, who was the person that they hired, they had a slip, and they would always say, oh, I'm the learner. I'm the learner. So Even though two teachers in the in the hat. Yes, exactly. Like, every slip said teacher, mm-hmm. but the actor was told to say that they were a learner, mm-hmm. so that the person that was the teacher would always be the subject. Yeah. Okay. And it'll get less confusing in a second. So the subject and the actor would arrive at the session together, and the experimenter told them that they would be taking part in a, quote, scientific study of memory and learning, end quote. They would explain that they want to see what the effective punishment is on a subject's ability to memorize content. Mm-hmm. So after the two slips were drawn, again, the actor is pretending that they drew learner. The teacher and the learner were taken into adjacent rooms where the learner was dropped into what appeared to be an electric chair. Mm-hmm. So they just they sat down right there. <laughs> the experimenter was dressed in a white lab coat in order to appear to have more authority. So the teacher and the learner were then separated so that they could communicate, but they couldn't see each other. So, I wonder what that's like, because I think we talked about it last time, like, maybe a two-way mirror situation. Yeah, I think so. It yeah. was definitely, like, you can hear him, but you can't see him. Like, it's either maybe, oh. like, a really, really thin wall or something. Oh, okay. Like, you can definitely... Or there was, like, a microphone set up sort, sort of situation. I think I do, after we talked about this um, last week, I think I thought that I might have seen videos of this. Yeah, there's videos. And, yeah, I think that they had, a like, a speaker of some kind, like, a yeah. one-way communication I think it was, thing. yeah, more of that situation. I, I don't think... think- Two-way mirrors were a thing. <laughs> no, no, yeah, two-way... Well, I don't know. This was, you know... When was this? In the 60s? Yeah, they might have been. But I think what... If I remember correctly, the teacher, you know, the, the you know, middle person, right? Because that's what we said. There's, like, an authoritative person, someone in the middle, and then the person that's being, you know, that's put in this chair. Yes. The teacher, if I remember correctly, has the ability to speak to the person... And then the person not be able to speak back to the teacher. No, I think that the teacher has the ability to hear the learner, but they're not able to communicate. Like, you can't talk to them. Right. You can so, hear her, her like, the, te- the learner, but you can't talk to them. And then, like I said, I think what I remember correctly is that where the teacher was, if they held, it's like an intercom thing, like, if he held the button, he the learner Maybe, could yeah. hear him. But the teacher can hear the learner at all times. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So the teacher was then given a list of word pairs that he was to teach the learner. The teacher would begin by reading the list of word pairs to the learner, and then the teacher would read the first word of each pair and listen for possible correct answers. Okay. The learner would press a button to indicate the correct response, and if the learner was incorrect, the teacher would administer a shock to the learner with the voltage increasing in 15 volt increments for each wrong answer. But this is them being told to do so, right? right? So the experimenter's like, oh, if they get the answer wrong, you got to press that button, they're mm-hmm. going to get a shock. And again, they think they're in this electric chair. Yeah. <laughs> so the shock generator actually included verbal markings that varied from slight shock to dangerous shock. On so it's the like, yeah, like you can panel see it. or whatever it is, yeah. <laughs> so essentially the teacher can see, like, how close they're getting to, like, the danger. End. Yeah. The subject believed that for each wrong answer, the learner was receiving actual shocks, but in reality, there were no shocks. Subject or teacher. Yeah, subject or teacher. After the learner was separated from the teacher, the learner was set up on a tape recorder, integrated with the electric shock generator, which had been previously recorded, and they recorded sounds for each shock level. So the the learner is just kind of sitting in the other room. (laughs) Yeah. Just waiting. Oh, gosh. I know. 
There's chocolate and then there's lint chocolate. Chocolate that has a silky, smooth, and velvety texture has been synonymous with the name lint since its conception in 1845. Click the link in the show notes to receive free shipping with a $60 purchase. Be part of the Lint legacy and grab a bag of their world-famous truffles today. But as the voltages of the fake shocks increase, the learner would get the questions wrong. Again, they're actors, so they're getting the questions wrong on purpose. Right. The the teacher would begin pressing the voltages like higher and higher, and the learner was told to make audible protests, such as like banging on the wall or like shouting like stop stop or whatever. Oh my god, that's gotta be so scary. No, it's so scary. Yeah. So also as the voltages increased, the learner was kind of told to like do or say like a specific thing, but they said that if they reached the highest voltage, to just become silent. Like, like that's so scary. That's so scary. Look, <laughs> they're brain dead. That's what I mean. That's what the teacher thinks, right? right? And get, and keep in mind, the teacher is the only one that's not in on this experiment. Yeah, like, they're the subject. <sighs> I know. So if at any time the teacher was like, "Whoa, like <laughs> maybe we shouldn't be doing this," you know, they're yeah, this clearly is a human in pain. Being. Yeah, the experimenter was instructed to give a specific verbal prod, and these would go in order. So the first time that the teacher would say, "Maybe we shouldn't do this," they the instructor would say or excuse me, experimenter would say, please continue or please go on. If the teacher said no again, the experimenter was told to say, the experiment requires that you continue. Then another protest experimenter says, it is absolutely essential that you continue. And then lastly, they would say, you have no other choice, you must go on. The second prompt could only be used if the first one was unsuccessful and so on. Mm -hmm. If the teacher still wanted to stop after all four of the verbal prods, the experiment would stop. Okay. So well, they would have to, to say it four times, though. Yeah. They'd literally have to be like, no, no listen no, to me. Like, no, this person's in no. pain. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> and a lot of people would not protest after being told twice, once or twice, you yeah. know. <sighs> Otherwise, if there was no verbal protest or if they didn't say it four times, the experiment was stopped after the subject reached the highest voltage level. Okay. So either way, by the highest voltage level. But again, we have to remember nobody's being tortured. Nobody's here. being tortured, but, they but the think- teacher thinks they are. Well, technically the teacher's being tortured. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Mentally. So the experimenter also had prompts to use if the teacher made specific comments. So if the teacher asked whether the learner might suffer permanent physical harm, the experimenter was supposed to say, quote, although the shocks may be painful, there is no permanent tissue damage, so please go on, end quote. But still also... <laughs> They're still in pain. <laughs> I got to the highest voltage, and there's no noise coming out of this man anymore. <laughs> so so you, you can stop now, you, you killed him. Tell me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seriously. You can stop now, he's dead. If the teacher said that the learner clearly wants to stop, the experimenter should say, quote, whether the learner likes it or not, you must go on until he has learned all of the word pairs correctly, so please go on. He's only getting paid $40 for this hour. So keep in mind also, the teacher thinks that the learner is getting a shock because they're getting the words wrong. And the idea behind the experiment is that the shock will will convince the learner to become correct all of a sudden. Yeah. (laughs) Like it's supposed to influence them to remember better, you know? I think I remember watching that video and the teacher that, or the subject that is being, is administering the shocks is increasingly disappointed when the learner on the other side doesn't get the correct answer would be too and he's like rooting for the guy like on the other side of this wall and he's, he's like, like please remember please remember, like, please please remember. remember. and he'll get it wrong and he'll go oh, like that like he ha- <laughs> he has to push the button God, you know but the crazy uh, thing is that he doesn't have to push the button he doesn't he just has to speak up for himself or speak up for the learner a couple of times couple and times. then it'll end mm-hmm. but they don't know that yeah 
So before the experiment began, Stanley pulled 14 Yale University senior year of psychology majors to predict the behavior of 100 hypothetical teachers or subjects. As of the poll, respondents believed that only a very small fraction of the teachers would be prepared to inflict the maximum voltage. Stanley also did the poll on his colleagues and found out that they too believed very few subjects would progress beyond a very strong shock. And lastly, he would also poll 40 psychiatrists from a medical school, and they mostly believed that by the 10th shock, when the victim demands to be free, most subjects would stop the experiment. Yeah, I did find that interesting too when you brought that up, that I, I mean, I don't know what I would think at that moment. Clearly, listening to this episode, I'm like, it's possible for people to to ignore that gut uh, that gut feeling or that sense of right and wrong when being told something by an author- authoritative figure. And I did find it kind of surprising that everybody else was like, nobody's going to do that. Nobody's going to do that. Nobody's yeah. going to do that. Everything. No way. People aren't like that. It's just crazy because they're like, there's no way. Yeah, you're like, you're right. There's no way. And then you see the experiment results and you're like, what the fuck? What? So yeah. <laughs> the psychiatrist also predicted that by the 300 volt shock, when the victim was supposed to fall silent, that only 3.73% of the subjects would still continue. And they believed that, quote, only a little over one-tenth of one percent of the subjects would administer the highest shock on the board, end quote. Yeah, arrest those guys. Those are the Bundys of the world. <laughs> yeah, the guys that will do the shock. He's like, he's not responding. Shock him again. Shock him again. Just keep going. <laughs> those are the Bundys of the world. So Stanley also suspected before the experiment that the obedience exhibited by Nazis reflected a distinct German characteristic and planned to use the American participants in this experiment as a control group before doing the same experiment on German participants because he expected the German participants to believe closer to not to behave, excuse me, closer to Nazis and not the American citizens. I feel like that's putting people in a bucket. Oh, though. for sure. But he's like, this is my way to prove that, like, you know, people that are German have this hatred in their blood. Ugh, they're just inherently awful. But the thing is, the unexpected results of the experiment actually stopped him from even performing the experiment with German participants because he was like, oh wait, Americans do it too when so they've been thought- told to by an authority figure. He thought, what, Americans were, like, more, like, aren't as reactive or aren't as obedient? Yeah, or I guess so, because he as... said that he was going to use the American participants as his control group. So, like, the baseline. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty shitty baseline. <laughs> yeah. So, Stanley would collect the results at the end of the experiment and note that the subjects were oftentimes very uncomfortable administering the shocks and even displayed varying degrees of tension and stress. 14 of the 40 subjects showed definite signs of nervousness, laughing or smiling, and every participant paused the experiment at least once to question it. Oh, okay. Most continued, however, after being assured by the experimenter, and some said that they would even refund the money that they are paid for participating. They were like, I don't want to do this. Like, you don't have to pay me. Can I, can we stop? Oh, when they But said they didn't say it four times, so when it they, didn't stop. When they offered to stop, they said, no, I don't want to do this anymore. You can have the money back. Yeah. I know. That's... And then to continue doing it. Uh-huh. It's crazy. $40 is $40. But you're like, but I wouldn't want to shock somebody. Amanda. Death. Yeah. <laughs> Although, this is interesting, while leaving the experiment, Stanley found that many participants were actually happy to have taken part in it, in hindsight. And I'll get into that just in a second. Just so that I know, you said you're going to get into it, but just so that they didn't know what they were capable of, kind of? Yeah, well, it's kind of like, wow, like, I didn't realize how, I guess, like, influential I was or oh. how willing I was to, like, like really hurt somebody. Like, I don't think about things like that in depth. Just, I mm. should use that knowledge in the future and not be so 
like just submissive, you know? Yeah. yeah that makes Especially sense. when it's hurting somebody else. Yeah. Stanley would summarize the finding of this experiment in a 1974 article stating, quote, The legal and philosophic aspects of obedience are of enormous importance, but they say very little about how most people behave in concrete situations. I set up a simple experiment at Yale University to test how much pain an ordinary citizen would inflict on another person simply because he was ordered to by an experimental scientist. Stark authority was pitted against the subject's strongest moral imperatives against hurting others, and with the subject's ears ringing with the screams of the victims, authority won more often than not. The extreme willingness of adults to go to almost any lengths on the command of an authority constitutes the chief finding of the study and the fact most urgently demanding explanation. Ordinary people simply doing their jobs and without any particular hostility on their part can become agents in a terrible destructive process. Moreover, even when the destructive effects of their work become patently clear and they are asked to carry out actions incompatible with fundamental standards of, mor- standards of morality, relatively few people have the resources needed to resist authority, end quote. This is like Stanford prison experiment. Oh, yeah. Dr. Zimbardo. Oh, yeah. And we that, know we talked old, about him. That, <laughs> that old kook. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, it's like, he's pretty much saying, like, this needs to be talked about. Like, people are so willing to just not question authority. Mm-hmm. You can literally... I mean, ha- okay, this is a good example. How many times have you seen a video where, like, a robber will come in and they'll be like, put everything in the bag, and the person's like, no, and they're like, oh, shit, and they leave, because the person stood up to them. That's not what they were anticipating, you know, yeah. for someone to stand up to them, and they're like, oh, shit, like, they weren't actually going to shoot anyone. This is yeah. a water gun. But, like, <laughs> I was hoping that he would just see the authority, the authority. that I have with the weapon yeah. and just submit, right? Right. And it's very rare that people don't. Right. And you see videos all the time of people... of. of banks getting held up and people drop to the ground you know mm-hmm. you don't really see the video very often of someone saying hell no like, yeah. you know what i mean for sure but i think there's also an a, i mean a level of um self-preservation with that so i'm being told what to do by an assuming figure like an, an authority figure of some kind i better go ahead and just do what they say so, so that they don't hurt me or they don't fire me or they don't talk badly about me exactly i think a better example would be like a like a high school kid in a classroom Mm -hmm. most of the kids are gonna sit down and be quiet when the teacher tells them to or else they'll go to the principal's office right Right. but that one kid that's like no you know he might go to the principal's office but he stood up for you know himself or yeah but like i said it's all about self-preservation because if you don't sit down and do your homework or whatever it is you're gonna get sent to the principal's office yeah i don't want to get sent to the principal's office because I need to preserve the way that people look at me or see yeah. me or whatever it might be. Or in some cases, it's a life or death situation. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. So later on, Stanley and other psychologists would perform variations of the experiment throughout the world every time with similar results. So I guess he did kind of like do it with other groups of people, but I think other psychologists like, did it and he Germany. kind of assisted. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to Germany. Stanley would later investigate the effect of the experiment's locale on obedience levels by holding an experiment in an unregistered backstreet office at a bustling city, as opposed to a Yale, uh, to Yale at a respectable university. Yeah. So he's like, maybe people act different, you know, in, like, the Bronx than they will in, like, a really high-held university. Right. The level of obedience, although somewhat reduced, was not significantly lower in these um, experiments. So pretty much same results. Yeah. Yeah. Thomas Blass performed a meta-analysis on the results of repeated performance of the experiment. 
He found that all the percentages of participants who are prepared to inflict fatal voltages ranged from 28% to 91%. That's a pretty big range. Pretty big range, yeah. Well, they did a lot of experiments. Yeah. <laughs> there was no significant trend over time, and the average percentage for U.S. studies was 61%, close to the one for non-U.S. studies, which would be 66%. Mm. Again, that being the participants that were refusing to administer the final shock. Mm-hmm. Among this big number of participants who didn't want to administer the final shocks, they also neither insisted that the experiment be terminated nor left the room to check the health of the victim without requesting permission. Mm-hmm. So they didn't want to administer the shocks, but they also didn't like call the experiment off. Yeah. One fellow psychologist, Philip Zambardo, asked him about this point. <laughs> So, for those that don't know, (laughs) Philip Zambardo was the psychologist behind the Stanford Prison Experiment, and I did a mental breakdown on that. If you haven't listened to that, please go do so, because it's actually really interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's fucked up, but it's really interesting. (laughs) Of course, the Milgram Experiment raised questions about the research ethics of scientific experimentation because of the extreme emotional distress and inflicted insight suffered by the patients. Some critics argue that participants were not properly debriefed about what was going to happen before. Hmm. Although Stanley would repeatedly receive offers of assistance and requests to join the staff from former participants, that's, like I said earlier, that people were, like, grateful that they had been into it. Mm -hmm. So six years after the experiment, one of the participants wrote to Stanley, explaining why he was glad to have participated, despite the stress that he endured. Quote, While I was a subject in 1964, though I believed that I was hurting someone, I was totally unaware of why I was doing so. If you people ever realize when they were acting accordingly to their own beliefs and when they are meekly submitting to authority, to permit myself to be drafted with the understanding that I am submitting to authority's demand to do something very wrong would make me frightened of myself. I am fully prepared to go to jail if I am not granted conscientious conscientious objector status. Indeed, it is the only course I could take to be faithful to what I believe. My only hope is that members of my board act equally according to their conscience." End quote. So he's, like, willing to be, like, he's, like, put me in jail. Clearly, I'm a danger to society. I'd listen to authority. I, I thought I was hurting someone. Yeah. Like, I should be in jail, you know? Oh, my gosh. I can't I even know. imagine feeling that way. What a mindset. So a lot of people, of course, had really critical responses in the scientific community about the fact that Stanley was saying that this experiment was applicable to the Holocaust experience. Well, no. Yeah. Stanley would claim, quote, a common psychological process is centrally involved in both events, end quote. James Waller, however, chair of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Keene State College, expressed the opinion that the Milgram experiment did not correspond well to the Holocaust events, and he gave a couple reasons why. So, number one, the subjects of the Milgram experiment were assured in advance that no permanent physical damage would result from their actions. However, the Holocaust perpetrators were fully aware that they were killing and maiming their victims. Mm -hmm. Number two, the laboratory subjects themselves did not know their victims and were not motivated by any external racism or other biases, while the Holocaust perpetrators displayed an intense devaluation of the victims through a lifetime of personal development. Yeah. Number three, those serving punishment at the lab were not sadists and often exhibited great anguish and conflict in the experiment, unlike the executioners of the final solution who had a clear goal on their hands that was set beforehand. Yeah. And number four, the experiment lasted for only an hour, with little to no time for subjects to contemplate the implications of their behavior, while the Holocaust lasted for fucking years, with ample time for a moral assessment of all individuals and organizations involved. That's so true, because it's, again, it's only an hour-long experiment when, you know, all of these Nazi soldiers had ample time, like you said, to 
say no or stand up or quit or whatever. And literal years. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot more on this subject. If you want to go research and do a little bit more, um, deep dive into it, I just want to do a quick minty breaky on it and spark a conversation about it. Yeah. Just interesting. The mindset of like being the mindset of being able to inflict pain on someone just because someone like a lab coat told you to. Right. Um, lastly, Stanley Milgram died on December 20th, 1984, and he had a vast amount of other contributions to the psychology and science world. He's actually really, really well known, mm-hmm. uh, not just for this, but for a lot of other things. Unlike Zambardo, that's like, like no one else is going to let you do an experiment yeah, ever. Exactly. <laughs> and he's like, boop, 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 and then just like <laughs> blips off into space. <laughs> <laughs> Stanley was actually uh, widely regarded as one of the most important figures in the history of social psychology. And in a survey published in 2002, they actually ranked Stanley as the 46th most cited psychologist of the 20th century. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, that's my mental breakdown. I thought that was interesting. I know that we had mentioned it like a couple of mental breakdowns ago. We're like, mm-hmm. what's that one experiment where they thought they were inflicting the shock people. and they don't? And yeah. so I was like, decided to do a deep dive. <laughs> yeah. All the D's. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm excited to hear it again, honestly, because I definitely think there was a few nuggets in there that I was like... Oh, I didn't remember that from when we recorded uh, at this point, like, a week and a half ago. Yeah. yeah. And, again, it was, like, a complete, like, glitch in the Matrix that that one got deleted. But I think I did much better this time around than last time. So I'm, like, almost kind of glad that I got to redo it because I wasn't crazy about the way I presented it the first time. Yeah. I don't remember. Were we doing something else that night? We, I think we recorded two things at once or something. Oh, that's right. I think we recorded two. That's probably why. I'm probably yeah. a little tired or something last yeah. week. <laughs> Definitely. Well, but thank you guys way. for joining us. We yeah, have thanks a really for your great patience. case. Yeah, now that actually we did this, it's now going to be flip-flops. So it'll be my mental breakdown in your case, and then next week it'll be your mental breakdown in my case, mm-hmm. instead of having us do two in the same week. Yeah. So. It's those double episodes. When we do part twos, yeah, it's like... it switches. Yeah. We were doing... Uh, we did part twos, and then we weren't doing every other it was we were doing it two times a week mm-hmm. it seemed like and then now it's like back to every other yeah so, so you guys yeah. are gonna hear both of our takes each week now until we do another part two or something else happens <laughs> yeah absolutely and if you are a patreon member you have an exclusive message for you on our patreon website you do app, so go check that out we're gonna release that as soon as we're off here recording so yeah. you guys can go check that out and it's just a little little nugget of information for you guys yeah of course okay all what? right well Love you. Love you, too. Bye. Bye. Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Love you, bye. Love you, bye. Looking to expand your wine knowledge or just indulge in your favorites? Gold Medal Wine Club is what you're looking for. Enjoy small production, award-winning wines from authentic family-owned wineries delivered right to your door. Unlike other Wine of the Month clubs, Gold Medal Wine Club never features private labels or bulk wines. Instead, every shipment is from a unique, family-owned winery, each with a personalized story to tell. Take advantage of multiple different style offers when using the link in our show notes, and take home the gold today.